As I mentioned at the welcome, we begin a two-week sermon series today entitled Surprised by Hope. And this morning, our Evangelical Free Church of America Northern Plains District Superintendent, Dr. Brian Wright, will be sharing with us. He's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, Denver Seminary, and Bethel Seminary. Brian has served the EFCA for 24 years with pastorates in Mott, North Dakota, and Owatonna, Minnesota. He's a wonderful husband with a great wife and three amazing kids, one of whom is right here in the front row. Welcome. And I want you to give a nice, warm Salem welcome to not only doctor, but Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. Brian Wright. Bring him on up. Okay, thank you for that welcome. I appreciate that. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, as district superintendent, I want to just share with you one um, little invite to something that's going to be happening within the district uh, in the very near future, and it's important because it's happening right here. Uh, our district conference is happening uh, on February uh, 18th and 19th, and it's going to be right here at Salem, and I want to invite you to come and be part of it. Uh, you can be part of that in a couple of different ways. You can come as uh, delegates from your church. You can just sign up and come to the conference. Anybody's welcome to sign up, register, and come. There's also going to be a service on Friday night uh, with our speaker, uh, and everybody from the host church is welcome to come to that. You don't have to register or sign up. You can just come and be part of that service. We'd love to have you uh, come and be here uh, for that. Our theme for the year is what's next. And that's kind of because out of these last months that we've been through, that's a question I think we have all asked ourselves. And we've kind of, you can ask it, I thought about different ways that that question can be asked, right? You might ask that question and be going, oh, what next? Or we might go, ooh, what's next? Or we might go, oh, what's next? Or probably all three of those somewhere in those last months. Our speaker is Carl Vatters. He's going to be talking about leading the post-pandemic church. He's going to be talking about how we can answer that question for our churches. What's next? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities as we look at this season of ministry that we are in? So we'd love to have you come, be part of that. Everybody's welcome to come. <clears throat> We've described that conference as a big family reunion. That's really what it is. That's really what we want it to be. And we would just love to have you come and join us uh, and be part of that uh, in February. So I want to thank you also as a church for being willing to host that for us. We're excited uh, to be here with you for those days. I want to turn now to the, the topic that I have for today, and we're going to be looking at, at some different uh, passages, but primarily we're going to be sitting in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have a, a Bible with you or want to open it up on your phone, um, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 11, and we'll pick up some other passages as we uh, move along. 1 Corinthians 15. And as a, a pastor in all those years, it's kind of my tradition that something that I like to do is when the Word of God is read and invite people to stand if they are able. So if you would be willing to do that, uh, to stand as we read together from God's Word. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 
and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You may be seated. So the, this two-week-old series here is Surprised by Hope, and, and really the topic we're discussing is the idea of heaven and what awaits us uh, in eternity. And it's an important question to talk about because it is something that is, there's a lot of misconception out there about what heaven might be like, about what eternity might be like. And I think one of the ways we can see that uh, is one of my favorite cartoons. Uh, it's by the name Gary Larson, The Far Side. Any of you remember Far Side cartoons? You like those? I love Far Side cartoons. And here's his picture of heaven. Wish I'd brought a magazine. And I think that that's instructive for us because it represents some of that misconception that's out there. Uh, first misconception is, no, we do not get wings and become angels. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you if, if that's what you were thinking, and that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. But just understand, humans are a created order of beings. Angels are a created order of beings. Humans do not become angels when they go to heaven. Um, one of the things that I am aware of as I deliver this message, it may stir up more questions than it actually gives answers. Uh, when I was a, a pastor in Owatonna uh, for 12 years, and I gave one of these sermons, and it kind of would raise some of these difficult theological questions, I had the wonderful benefit of having a youth pastor who had an education and had graduated from the University of Northwestern, and I could just refer all difficult questions to him. So thank you, Kent, for being here and playing that role for me today. Um, all difficult questions can be referred to Kent. Uh, but no, so we don't become angels. We don't go sit on clouds and play harps. It's not going to be dull and it's not going to be boring. But that idea is out there. I think sometimes when we think about what heaven or eternity might be like, our conception is it's this. We will spend eternity sitting in church. It's going to be an eternal church service. And for some of you, probably for most of you, that is not a thrilling concept. Now, you love coming to church, but you're also looking forward to going home and doing other things, Right? And the idea of sitting in church forever may not be something that's very exciting to you. That idea is out there. Another way of looking at this misconception is when I was at Moody, one of the things that all Moody students have to do is they have to do a practical Christian ministry. A practical Christian ministry, you go out and you teach Sunday school or you do lead worship or you do some other work at, at a church so that you're constantly involved in the work of the church. And so as a freshman, my first practical Christian ministry was to teach Sunday school at Addison Street Baptist Church. It was a little church, about 25 people. I had one student in my class. And I show up for my first time. I wanted to do an awesome job. I wanted to do so good. I had studied. I got my lesson plan. had it all laid out, what I was going to do. And we were talking at the very beginning with him, just going to get to know him. I asked him about going to heaven. And I said, did he want to go to heaven someday and be with Jesus? And this little, uh, about second grader, looked at me and goes, no. I'd never heard that answer before. I never had somebody look at me and say that I didn't want to go to heaven. And so I kind of said, okay, why don't you want to go to heaven? 
because I can't have any fun there. Okay, so why don't you think you can, won't have fun in heaven? Because they won't let me do anything bad. Okay, so we have work to do. <laughs> uh, we need to do some explaining and we need to have uh, some work to do and a lot of prayer <laughs> for this class. Um, now, I will say this, that by the end of the year that I was there teaching with him, I did get to pray with that little boy to receive Christ and I trust that I will see him in heaven one day. And he will know that it is not boring, that you can have fun there, um, that it will be a wonderful place. Why do we have these misconceptions? Why are those ideas out there? Well, there are, are really two components to it, I think, within the church, is why those misconceptions take root and they grow up within the church. Uh, the first one of those misconceptions is a lack of emphasis. We just don't teach on it all that much. Um, when we do our preaching, we have lots of preaching about how to reach people for Christ and how to tell people how to get to heaven and what it means to be saved and, and all of those kinds of things, but we don't spend a lot of time on this. To be honest, we don't spend a lot of time studying it either. When I, again, at Moody, one of our textbooks, this is one of my uh, uh, theology textbooks. Uh, it's a Systematic Theology by Lewis Burkhoff. Um, some of you probably have seen this book. Um, it's a very large theology textbook, about 780 pages long. Uh, it talks about lots of things about who Jesus is and what he came to do and how we can know him and what that means and how all of that is applied to us. Out of those 780 pages, do you know how much time is spent talking about what it will be like living with him in eternity? Let me show you. Out of 780 pages, this is it. Two sheets of paper, about two and a half pages. We just don't teach about it. We don't sing about it. Even, you know, some of our contemporary music doesn't really uh, talk about it a lot. And not that that's anything a knock against contemporary music. I, I love listening to it, but it focuses on um, the joy that Christ gives us and the encouragement that we have or how he helps us through difficult times or the, how we can know about the, the wonderful joy of knowing him and all those things. But this doesn't talk a lot about it. It, it was really cool. Very, we did Joy to the World. That is one of the songs that actually does talk about eternity. I know we sing it at Christmas, but it isn't about the first coming, it's about the second. I hope you know that. It's about His return. There just isn't a lot out there. So there's a lack of emphasis uh, in our churches, in our teaching, which is partly why I'm here doing this, but there's also, I think, a deliberate deception going on. This is something that Randy Elkhorn points out in his book on heaven, and a lot of what I'm going to say today is impacted by that work. I think it's a very good work on the topic. But he mentions this idea that it is a deliberate deception. He talks about this passage in Revelation. He said, He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. You see, if Satan can convince people that what comes next or what might come next isn't any big deal or isn't any good compared to what is now, if we can convince them that the now is what's important and the now is better than what will be, then he's won. Because we're focused on a promise of what will be. If he can convince people that the now is better, that's part of his strategy for winning. And so he wants us to think it's going to be dull, and it's going to be boring, and you can't have any fun there. It's going to be this long, eternal, boring church service maybe. But I want to tell you this morning is that it is not that. What is to come is not less than what is now. It is so much more. What is to come is so much more. It is so much better than what is now. And that is a cause for hope, prized by hope. That is a cause for great hope 
before us. So there's really three questions I want to look at to kind of help us think about that. Question number one is, what will I be like there? That's a big question. What will I be like? Second question is, what will life be like there? And the third question is, what does that have to do with now? So we're going to look at that. We want us to understand that what comes is so much better. What waits for us is so much better. And it starts by understanding what we will be like. And I want to give you two words for you to hang on to to think about what we will be like. There's two key words for understanding that. Number one is resurrected, and number two is glorified. Those are two uh, biblical theological terms that really describe what we will be like. We will be resurrected, and we will be glorified. And we're going to look first at the idea of, of resurrection. And what I want us to think about, first of all, is, is just the reality of it. That's really that passage that I read at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. That's really what Paul wants to start with in this passage, is to emphasize the reality of this resurrection. It is a real thing that really happened. And he points to real people and real witnesses who saw the reality of the risen Christ. They saw Jesus alive again. And he says there was Cephas, and there was the twelve, and there were five hundred, and there was James, and there were all the apostles, and then lastly there was me, and I saw him. And he says some of them have fallen asleep, but many of them are still alive. And what he's really inviting the Corinthians to say, look, you could go and ask these people. They saw him. He wants them to understand this is a, a, a truth. It is a fundamental reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. That tomb is empty. That is the foundation, that which is of first importance. What is of first importance? That Christ came and that He died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and then on the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. That is a foundational reality of the Christian faith. And it matters so much, the importance of it. That's the second one. Because he goes on to say this, for if the dead in Christ are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. This is the foundation. There really isn't anything to the Christian faith if Jesus isn't raised. If the tomb isn't empty, if the resurrection isn't real, then there is really no point to us being here, is what Paul is telling us. Now, I want to tell you something, and maybe it's a risk for a district superintendent to get up and, and say this, especially after Kent said all those wonderful, nice things about me. He said, I, I came to faith in Christ at a very early age, I lived in a Christian home, lived in a pastor's home, went to Christian schools, have taught and been a pastor for 24 years and now have this role, can I tell you that there are still moments when I have questions and there are still doubts? Is that okay to tell you that? I think it's real. And it's not a bad thing to have those. It's not a bad thing. But I want to tell you what happens when I have those moments. So I come back to this. I come back to that reality into that empty tomb. And I can't go around that. I can't get past that. I can't get past a historical reality that there was really a man named Jesus Christ who lived and taught and who died and who was buried and who walked out of his tomb. And that that means that he is no ordinary person. He is, in fact, who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. 
and is worthy of my faith and my trust. And that I have no other recourse but to follow Him, to follow the one who has power over life and death and the grave. It's real. You understand that if in those early days, if the Romans and the Jews really wanted to put an end to this whole Christianity thing, all they had to do was go and get the body out of the tomb and hang it up from the wall of Jerusalem and say, look, all of you people who are saying Jesus is alive again, there's the body, knock it off. And don't think they wouldn't do it. Don't think that somehow the Romans would be squeamish about doing something like that. They absolutely wouldn't. They did stuff like that all the time. They couldn't because there wasn't a body to hang there. The grave was empty. And I always come back to that. It is that foundational importance. What we base our faith upon is that Jesus is risen from the dead. That validates everything. Paul says it hangs, everything hangs on that. So we know that He is risen. And we know if He is risen, that we will also be raised to be like Him. That's the next part of this. So that's the importance of it. So one of the implications of what does that mean? That we will be raised to be like Him. So we're going to go down this passage in 1 Corinthians, jump down a little bit to verses 42 and 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is so imperishable, um, um, what is so imperishable, what is raised, imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So let's talk about those terms just a little bit. What are some of those implications? First one is imperishable. Really that word imperishable simply means this, it is a body that does not grow old and that does not wear out. That is wonderful news, right? Because it means that our bodies in eternity, they don't grow old, they don't wear out, which means there is no further need for health insurance or hospitals or doctor visits or medical tests or any of those things. That is cause for rejoicing right there. There's no other way around that. To be set free from those things. I'll be free from this. This is, uh, this is an insulin pump. I'm a diabetic. I, gotta ha- I have this to help with, with my health now. I won't ever have to deal with this again. No more insulin pump. Uh, my leg that gets sore once in a while due to a tragic youth group game accident in which my leg was broken as a pastor. Uh, yes, my youth pastor broke my leg in a youth group game. Um, <clears throat> we won't talk about that. We still like him. Uh, no. But the pain that that sometimes gives me, gone. All of that is removed. All the things that you struggle with, all the infirmities that we have that we struggle with, all those things are gone, and we never have to worry about them again. One of the implications about that that was shared at a theology conference I was at a couple years ago, he was talking about, so what that means is, I understand this, so if you're kind of those people who are like, you know, maybe I'd like to try this, you know, bungee jumping or base jumping or do something crazy like that, save it for the imperishable body. <laughs> You'll have the chance to do that. Just save it for then, right? They don't have to worry about causing any uh, injuries now. But it's imperishable. It's wonderful. It is also glorious. Glorious is related to dishonor, and it probably implies something to do with beauty. It's a little unclear what exactly it says. It probably has something to do with beauty. It probably has to do with not with the fact that we're all just going to be gorgeous models. That's not what we're just talking about. But we are now, we will be free of the imperfections that come from this world and come from the ravages that sin has placed on this world. Be free from 
those imperfections, made the way that God wanted us to be. Now, I do believe that, that in that there is continuity with this body that we have, right? It isn't a completely new and different thing. There is continuity with it and that we will be able to be seen and recognized and others will know us. And why would I say that? Because we base this idea again on what was Jesus' resurrected body like. Did those who saw him know him? They did. They recognized him. So there was continuity with his earthly body, even to the point where he still bore the scars. He still bore the, the, the nail holes, the piercing of his side. They were able to see those things and know that it was him. There was continuity for him, so he would be able to recognize. So there will be continuity for us, but it will be, we will be made in a way that is free from the imperfection of, that sin has brought in this world and will be made the way that God had always intended that to be. So glorious, powerful. Now, I would love to tell you that that all means you get the superpower of your choice, but that doesn't, I think that's not what that means. Uh, it would be cool if that does happen. I'm all for that, and I would totally endorse that. Um, I want to fly. My son wants super speed. Um, but I don't think that's what that means. I think it actually is saying us we will have all of the power that we need to do whatever it is that God calls us to do in His service for all of eternity. We will have all of the strength and all of the, the knowledge and all of the abilities and all of the capabilities that we need to do whatever God calls us to do for all of eternity. Because we aren't going to be sitting on the cloud with the harp wondering where the magazine is. There's going to be stuff to do. There are things that we will be called to do in His service. We will have all the, the power, all the ability that we need to do those things. So it is imperishable, it is glorious, it is powerful, and it is spiritual. Now, I want to pause on that one for just a moment because that one has some uh, more misconception around it. When I was a pastor out in, in Mott, we were doing a Bible study. It was right around Easter time. We were talking about the resurrection, and we were going through this passage, and we were talking about this point, and I was making the point out of this passage that we will have bodies. They will be real, physical, material bodies. And I had one lady in this group who looked at me and said, no, 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 no. She had nothing to do. She wanted nothing to do with that idea. Because in her concept, in her understanding, everything that is evil in this world is tied up with the physical. And the only way to be free from that evil is for us to be non-physical beings. By the way, that has smacks of heresy that goes all the way back to the beginning of Gnosticism and those ideas, and it's not biblical teaching. The idea here is that it is a real physical body. Um, spiritual here does not mean non-physical. Um, and again, we say that because we look at Jesus and what kind of a body did he have? It was physical. He invited people to touch him. You could touch him. He ate food with the disciples. He apparently caught fish and cooked them. That's something you do with a body. He is a, it is an actual physical body. John in uh, 1 John is at pains to describe that this was somebody who was real, whom they had seen and they had touched, and, and the, the real nature of his resurrection was a real, physical, resurrected body. We will have one like his. Now, his could do some things that I don't know if ours will be able to do. He could seem to pop in and out of places and go through walls and all kinds of things. I don't, I don't know if we get that ability or if that's just something that comes with the fact that he is also fully God. I kind of tend to think that that is part of that. But we will have physical bodies. The the phrase is there. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
Both say body, same word. It is a physical, material body that we have that will spend that time with Christ through all eternity. It's imperishable. It is glorious. It is powerful. It is spiritual. That is, it is like His, but it is still material. Um, Wayne Grudem gives this definition of it. He says, such a body is not at all non-physical, but is a physical body raised to the degree of perfection which God originally intended it. That's what it is to be a spiritual body. And we will spend that and be in that state for all of eternity. Now, that also bears a point of clarification. It's interesting, you talk about this, and you kind of go down one road and you say, oh, well, we've got to back up and clarify something else, and we got to, it kind of connects to a lot of other things. So one of the things we need to clarify here is this idea of when I'm talking about heaven and when we receive these spiritual bodies that are imperishable, that are glorious and that are powerful, is not at the moment that you die. It is, this is what happens when Christ comes back. That is the moment when this occurs. Um, he talks about that at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. He says that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, and that is when Christ comes back. Well, what about the meantime? That's a question, right? Where does somebody go who has died and it was in Christ and who has died? Where are they now? Well, I believe they are with Jesus. Again, Paul says in Corinthians, is to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So I believe that they are with Him and that they have some kind of, I would think that they have some kind of physical existence in that place, in this moment, waiting for that moment when we will all receive that glorified body, but they don't have that yet. I also think that for them, they aren't going to realize that it was a long time that passed from the moment that, that they died and they went to be with Christ to when they received that body. I think they're going to sense that that was a long period of time, if it was. For some people, it won't be long at all. For whatever period of time that is, I don't think they'll sense that. I think they kind of uh, move to following divine time where a thousand years is like a day. I don't think they will have that sense of time the way that we do. But right now, they are at home with the Lord, and I don't know what, all the details of that. You know, that's okay. We don't know every detail of everything. Um, scripture doesn't give us a ton of detail about that other than to say that assurance that those who die in Christ are with Him and that one day when He comes back, we will all be made like Him. And so we can take that and trust that and know that that is the timing that God has in store for that. What that last moment is like is what we describe as glorification. Uh, so again, now we touch on something else. When we talk about salvation... That word, we understand, really has three parts to it. We could talk about our justification, which is how we are saved. It is that legal declaration where we receive, where Christ takes our sin from us and we receive His righteousness from Him. And that is put upon us and we are declared not guilty. Our price for our sin is paid in full by what Christ has done for us. We receive that by placing our faith and trust in Him. I would be totally remiss to spend any amount of time talking about heaven and eternity without saying that is how you have access to it, and that's the only way you have access to it, is by placing faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can provide that for you. There's only one person in all of history who ever got up and walked out of their grave, and it is Jesus Christ. And if you want to do the same, you have to follow Him. So if you want to have that, you need to place your faith and trust in Him. And if you do that, our sins are removed. His righteousness is given to us. We are made new in Christ. That is justification. But there is sanctification. Sanctification is this process where the Holy Spirit then comes in and begins to work in our lives to transform us, to make us more like Him. And that happens throughout our lives to make us hopefully more and more and more like Him. 
And the culmination of that is glorification when we receive these new and glorified bodies, which again, Wayne Grudem, one of my favorite theologians, defines this way. It is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes their, the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like His own. At that moment, when He comes back, the dead in Christ will rise and those who remain are all with Him and then we are reunited and we are given these new and resurrected bodies. We are glorified and made like Him. And what an amazing moment that will be to have that new resurrected and glorified body. That answers the question, what will I be like? I will be resurrected and I will be glorified. I'll have a body that is like Christ and that is imperishable and it is glorious and it is powerful and it is spiritual in the perfection that God has always intended. But what will life be like there? Again, there's a lot that I could say about that topic and I don't have time to go into every single detail of this and And to give the background on how we get to every one of these conclusions, I wish that I did. Um, There are great resources for that, things like uh, Heaven by Randy Elkhorn, other books on the topic. You've got a great pastoral staff, ask those questions. But I want to give you four words that kind of capture what I think that place will be like uh, from Scripture, because that's the only place we can go. There's always a temptation to go to other sources and other books. We have to go back to the Word of God and what does it say it will be like. Let me give you four things. Number one, it is renewed. It is a place renewed. It talks about a new heavens and a new earth, and really what I understand that to be, it is a remade heavens and earth. It is renewed, it is refreshed, it is made new. Um, And it has continuity with what is now, as we will have continuity with what is now. The new heavens and the new earth, I think, will have continuity with what is now. And I say that it's renewed because if you really want to understand what eternity is going to be like and what that world will be like, what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, I think the place in the Bible to read to really understand what that's going to be like is to go back and read Genesis 1 and 2 because God made that world once and He is taking us back there. One of the clues that He's taking us back there is when you get to Revelation, you read about the New Jerusalem, the trees that were in the Garden of Eden are there in the New Jerusalem. He's taking us back to Eden. He's taking us back to what we were originally created for in the existence that He originally had in mind for us before sin, before the fall, before all of that came in. He's going to remake it and bring us back to that place. So it is a place renewed. And I think about that, what an amazing thing that is, right? I don't know about you, I, I love traveling and I love seeing the beauty of this world that we have right now and God has blessed me with the ability to uh, be able to travel and see lots of those different places. Um, I've been able to see lots of different places in, in our country. I've This summer, I was able to travel out to the Northeast and visit Acadia National Park, and I've been down to the Grand Canyon, I've seen the Redwoods, and I've seen uh, beaches in Florida and all kinds of amazing places. I've gotten to go uh, snorkeling on a a coral reef in Haiti. I even had the chance to fulfill a childhood dream and travel to Africa and get to see elephants in the wild, which was so cool and so amazing, and all the wonder that is in this world, and I have this to tell you, for all of that, What is coming is better, so much better. I can't wait to see what that's going to be. As wonderful as there are things in this world now, what is coming will be so much more amazing. And I can't wait to see that, to see that place remade, to see that place renewed. So it is a place renewed. 
Secondly, it is a place of, of rest. There is an idea of rest there. It is a rest from the weariness of this life, all the things that are burdensome in this life. Really, that comes down to the impacts and the ravages of sin in this world and in this life. We get to lay all of that down. We don't have to carry that anymore. There is rest from all of those things, and that is a, a wonderful thing to look forward to. And there will be work to do. Not just rest, but there will also be work to do. We will not sit around in heaven twiddling our thumbs, and again, wishing we had a magazine. What are we going to do? Why would I say that? Well, because work predates fall. If, we, if this really is going back to Eden, Adam and Eve were tending the garden before the fall happened. There was work for them to do in that place, and I believe that God will have things for us to do in eternity, tending and caring for and working in this world. Now, what's different about that is it will be gone will be the burden of sin that makes work toilsome, that makes labor hard. It will now be something pleasurable, enjoyable, something we love to do, something we're anxious to do, excited to do. The, the, the impact of sin has gone upon it, but there will still be things to do, many wonderful, exciting, blessed things to do. There will still be work to be done there in that place, and it will be a place prepared for us. You know the passage from John 14, right? So I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you so that you can be where I am also. He's preparing a place for us. What a wonderful, hopeful thing that that is, to know that there is a place for me and for you that He is preparing for us. And one of the things that I would like to emphasize, I think in, in, in Alcorn touches it right here. He said that heaven isn't likely to have lots of identical residences. God loves diversity and He tailor makes His children and His provisions for them. When we see the particular place He's prepared for us, we will rejoice to see our ideal home. It's going to be different. Because one of the, the lines uh, John Ortberg has used that I, I really appreciate, God is not a mass producer. He is a master craftsman. He doesn't just stamp out one after another after another that look all identical. You've all seen you know, the housing developments and one house looks the same as the next is the next is the next is the next. That's not going to be heaven. And why would I say that? Look around. How many of you look exactly like the person sitting next to you? He didn't stamp all of you out. And if He can uniquely create every one of you, why would He not uniquely create a place for you? That seems entirely consistent with God and with His character and with His plan. He has made you individual and unique, and I believe that the place He has prepared for you will be individual, unique, your ideal and perfect home. And what a wonderful thing that is to look forward to. What a wonderful thing that is to have before us. You know, so we use this passage a lot when we talk at, at funerals. I used it this week. The church where I am a part of in, in Valley City, uh, one of our members died on Christmas Eve. And I was there for the prayer service and led that on Thursday. I was at the funeral on Friday. And what a wonderful thing it was to share with the family to talk about this. Their dad, was, uh, their, dad their grandpa, was a unique guy. Uh, they asked all the grandkids to share words that described grandpa, and they were words like fearless, adventurous, cowboy, unique, character, prankster, um, all those kinds of words, storyteller. I said, you know, all those are great words, and I want you to know as a family, he had a faith and a trust in Jesus Christ, and the fact that there is a place prepared for him means this. The adventure isn't over. The story isn't done. 
there will still be more times to gather around and tell stories together. Those moments are not gone. There is more adventure to live and more stories to tell. And you will be with him again and have that opportunity because of his faith in Jesus Christ. A unique place prepared for us. You see, what, what exists now is nothing compared to what will be. Don't ever buy the deception that what is to come is somehow lesser than what is now. It is so much greater. It is so much better. But what does that have to do with us now? The end of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, Therefore, my beloved brothers, so everything I just said, everything I just talked about, this is the end of it. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. That's what we need to know. That's what we need to have from this, is to know that this is, first of all, this is our sure foundation. We already talked about this. This is, our, we are founded on Christ and on the resurrection. It is why we are here this morning. It's why we're going to partake of these elements this morning, is because we believe that He died and that He rose again. That is the foundation on which we stand. It is that which gives us peace and strength and hope and joy that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. It is, means that we do not have to fear death and that we can live now with hope and with joy. That we don't have to cling on to this world like it's all that it is or try to grab everything that we can while we're here because there isn't anything to come. We can hold those things more loosely, but we have nothing to fear from those things. It, it, it's the end of this, this passage where he quotes that we so often look at it, but do we really embrace that? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There is hope and there is joy in that. We don't have to fear it. Now, I'm not looking to rush that moment, but when it comes... We can face it with no fear. It is one of the unique things, I'd say one of the unique blessings about being, serving in a pastor's role is the number of times that I have been with a family at the bedside of one at the moment that they entered eternity. And to be there in that moment, and it is one of the most profound things you'll ever experience. To know that one moment that person was there with you and the next they were in the presence of their Lord, receiving the full measure of the reward that is promised. What a hope that is. What a joy that is. What a motivation that is for what we do now, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, for it is not in vain. Again, we can focus not on grabbing stuff that we can do here, but we need to focus on doing that which will extend into eternity, to telling people about Jesus who need to hear, to serving people in His name, to proclaiming His message and His gospel everywhere it needs to be heard and to seeing lives touched and changed and transformed because we want them all to be with us and to experience what is to come. We want them with us in that moment. I want to show you a picture. It's not a great, it's not a work done by a great master. Uh, this painting was done by an artist named Lillian Emery, happens to be my grandmother. And we found this going through her house after she died. Uh, she was an artist and she liked to draw on everything. We found, that we had lots of paintings of hers, but at, going through the house after her death, we found something, something on the order of about 350 paintings, most of which we had never seen before. This was one of them. And I was so struck by this, not only by the picture of Christ in the middle, but by those in the cloud around him 
thinking about this, that as I found this after her death, she is now one of those faces. She is now in his presence. She is experiencing everything that I have talked about. And one day I get to be with her. One day I get to be in that painting. One day I get to be with Christ. One day you get to be with Christ if you have faith and trust in Him. How many more people do we have in our lives who we want to make sure are in that picture with us? That's the work that we have to do now. That's what our hope motivates us to. We have the hope and the joy of knowing that one day we will be there, and we have the task of making sure that we proclaim that news to everyone else so that one day they can be there too because our labor is not in vain. That's the hope that we have. What is coming is so much better than what is. Let us give ourselves fully to the work that we have, that all whom we would want, that all around us would know that good news and that many would come to share in that moment with us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the reality that comes reality that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, that we can have hope and joy now because we know what's coming. We know how much better it's going to be, that we will be like you, resurrected, glorified in your presence forevermore. Father, we will look forward to that day, and as we look forward to that day, we give ourselves now to the work that we have to do until it comes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.